And we're back. <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty enthusiastic return back to the Week old microphone. Week two of International Great Dive Podcast Cave Diving Month. You're here with, I'm not Dave DeSotos Jamesy. And, and Spelunker Brando. And Spelunker Brando. Old Spelunking, man. And we are here with week two, the continuation of Sheck Exley's accident analysis. Revisited, Brando, when we last left the people. We uh, we had just gotten uh, through talking about Dave DeSoto's associative approach to looking at these accidents. And David basically just kind of quit diving, Mm -hmm. right? Ducked out and Sheck was taking over the... The task of organizing these cave diving recoveries and and continuing the research about the fatalities, and Skin Diver magazine, you know, he had mentioned uh, Paul Zamoulis had, had just talked about publishing that article about the the great cave rush of the seventies. <laughs> You've named and it all already. the and all the people going into those florida caves back in the the, the early 70s i once again putting in the the late hours for the people here having my fingers that article that paul zamoulis wrote in 1973 oh cool titled cave diving is not for sport divers well it should. It should. A more apropos title would be "Cave Diving is Not for People Who Only Have Sport Diver Training." <laughs> I mean, once you get yeah, cave training, yeah, right, right. You, you're a sport diver, but you're a sport diver with cave training, and and I think this is a lot of the beginning of our perspective here. You know, with, with that last episode of where we're going is the issue. What we can see in 2023 that I don't think they were noticing in 1973 or 83 or 93 or, or, you know, continue on. Right. But is, is that it's not that cave diving is where you go to die necessarily. (laughs) It is where you go to die. If you have only had a basic scuba class. Yeah. And what we were looking at is there's a way to rewrite that book that puts you on a path where this information isn't completely new to you when you get there. Right. You still need the training. Well, yeah. Yeah, but wouldn't it be nice to have training that builds on your prior training rather than, hey, you know all that stuff you learned? Forget it. We're we're going to reprogram you here. Right. Now you want to come here? We got to start all over. (laughs) Exactly. Which that's... (sighs) That's what it, the way it was, and to a great extent, it, it still is. Maybe even worse in some respects, right? Right. I, I mean, could you imagine um, learning to ride your first bicycle and finally getting that sweet BMX that you always wanted? And then, <laughs> then, then you got to commute to, to, to work, so you get a 10-speed, and uh, later on down the road, you, you want to go mountain biking, and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Take everything you know about riding a bicycle. Chuck it. Chuck it. Mm-hmm. 
We don't do anything the same. You don't pedal like that on a mountain bike. No. No, that'd be crazy. You don't, kill you, don't everybody on the trail? On, you don't balance on two <laughs> wheels like that on a mountain bike. It's completely <laughs> different. Yeah. Zamula said in that editorial, he said, although the national average for sports diving accidents appears to be happily improving, we continue to be haunted by several serious local problems. One of the worst of these is freshwater cave diving, a type of highly specialized underwater exploration almost totally unique to the north central area of Florida. Although, it, I mean, that first paragraph sounds a little like we're the enemy. Well, we were. They were. Yeah, but I think in a fight we'd take them, although their numbers are greater. They're all, you know... <laughs> I don't know. Have you been on a charter boat lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. Whereas cave divers, you know, are take it usually, seriously, especially back in the seventies. They take it seriously, man. Tough, brawny, mustached men. Well, it took physical. It took some physical strength to do it it still does right well, yeah it, you know, back in the 70s you know they, they didn't have a nice manicured path they didn't have manscaped either for that they matter didn't, they didn't have they didn't a have a manuscript <laughs> they didn't have a nice pretty deck <laughs> built all around orange grove to get in like, oh i know dude well even they the, didn't have that in the 90s either when i was doing caves little river was a was not what you see today. I'll tell you that. It much. wasn't a. Neither was Peacock. Neither was Ginny. It wasn't all paver stoned right to right to the water. They didn't. They didn't have that escalator and and all the servants to take your <laughs> take your tanks down your bottles. No, they didn't have anything. It was a hole in the ground. It's like Telford. It's a hole in the ground in the middle of nowhere. Although Little River's kind of at the side of a of the river. It wasn't all of the development, which made it easier and nicer and more accessible. And thus, you know, that's going to happen as more divers come into it, which is nice. Are you complaining about it? I'm not complaining. Oh, no, no, no. You're you're talking to a man who is once was a little rough and burly, but now he's getting older and he's nice and freshly manscaped. Dude. He like he likes it nice and convenient. You, know, you did not pull like it into my a nice, segue into the pull it into a nice parking lot, walking right up to the water's edge without, without worrying about twisting an ankle. I got delicate ankles nowadays. I'll say you know it's it's uh you know being this well groomed you got you got to take things a little more carefully. You got gray so hair too. Nice. That you I got need some to gray grow. hairs, but that's all right because I, you know, being sponsored by the good old people at Manscaped. Not only do I have fresh, clean, smooth sack and balls. <laughs> now, I, I want to ask you something. My, my Johnson is ready to go for, for a condom catheter, you know, uh, condom catheter assembly. We once again have a f- clean, fresh shave available to us with this new Beard Hedger Pro kit. Nice. Now, this is something I really am looking forward to they are scheduled to arrive uh well before our journey up north for the thunder bay international film festival perfect you're going to be able to groom that 
that crop and, and goatee of yours with uh, 20 different haircutting lengths, all with one guard, Brando. No more wow. messy drawer full of different add-on clipper edgers, a one, a two, a three, a four. No, no, that's right. Your face grooming is not going to be hard anymore. 20 different beard lengths with just one guard on this new beard hedger. Well, that sounds awesome because, yeah, that's a little minor annoyance having all those guards you got to take care of, move around in the drawer. Yeah, check it out, people. Get 20% off of free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com using that code TGDP. Don't forget Manscaped Brando, the Beard Hedger, it's got one stroke, it's got one guard, and 20 lengths. Whoa. So they're taking care of all the hair. What's what's next for, for Manscaped, you think? Holy moly, they're pushing the envelope every time we, we turn around. You know who would have liked the Beard Hedger? Old Paul Zamoulis. He had a, <laughs> he had a face full of stubble. <laughs> he would have. Maybe that's what he needed. He said that over 400 freshwater springs and sinkholes are known to exist in this inland section, of which 150 are being frequented regularly by scuba enthusiasts. The water flowing from these marvelous springs is a constant 72 degrees, absolutely pure and crystal clear. Underwater visibility often exceeds 150 feet, offering a pleasurable, exhilarating dive experience. This sounds great. Let's just go. (laughs) But these very same springs can prove to be death traps, for they lead to a tremendously complex labyrinth of twisting tunnels, pitch black caves, and cathedral-sized caverns sometimes winding their way underground for thousands of feet. And we've looked and touched at some of the articles from back in the 60s, you know, that Skin Diver was hitting, you know, about that beautiful crystal clear water. And as scuba was growing and more and more people were getting certified, and especially a lot of the local Floridians who it was just, you know, the backyard water, you know. You and I grew up having to dive Shitty old spring mill pond, you know. <laughs> you and I uh, had to had to go down to the local quarry. You take what you got, you know, you know. Fight boat traffic, you know, out on Union Lake in the summertime to get a dive in and enjoy five feet of visibility to just get underwater. These guys, this was just the water that they went to and started exploring it, and then word got out, and divers from all over started going, "Let's go dive that crystal clear water." Yeah. Well, it's easy to see, you know, how the attraction would be there, especially, like you say, with what we've had. Uh, You get what you get. You don't throw a fit. And this is where Paul Zamula said, in spite of their known perils and dozens of highly publicized horror stories of cave diving deaths, cave diving continues to grow in popularity. It is believed that more diving is now being done in springs than in all of Florida's coral reefs and the Florida Keys combined. During 1972, for example, an estimated 3,000 scuba divers were visiting the Florida Springs on any given weekend, totaling the 156,000 dives per year that Sheck was quoting 
at the end of that uh, last section of the article we were visiting last week. Paul says the rising popularity and increased publicity about the wonders of Florida cave diving has spread to neighboring states, much to the dismay of resident divers. They are finding themselves inundated by an avalanche of visiting divers from the north. The combined factors of a burgeoning sport, disgorging tens of thousands of new certified divers, the exploding popularity of diver travel, and improved roads to more isolated springs has created a situation which can only be described as the great cave rush of the 70s. And then Paul kind of goes on to talk about the perils of such diving and the people that are getting hurt and why people are dying and what's going on and the, and the kind of the, the building growth of the NACD. So what did you come away with from that article as far as a feeling or a message? What was it? Well, it was a warning to the readers of Skin Diver magazine at the time in the 70s who were strictly open water certified divers who wanted to go visit a spring that's going to lead to a cavern zone, that's going to lead to a full cave, that's going to lead to thousands of feet of labyrinth maze to stay away, that we, us civilized scuba divers, don't do that stuff of savages like cave diving. That's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. And at the time, it really is. I mean, it, it really legitimately is a completely different thing. And even still today, like if all you have is your basic open water certification, even your advanced, even your what we're going to see here in a minute with, with Sheck stories, even a professional dive master's instructors, it's a death trap, no doubt about it, because it's a completely different world than what the divers have been taught so far. I think it... I think the cave, right, the example you just brought out there, be back on the boat with 500 PSI, is the, is the mantra. It's the training mantra from, from the open water community. Well, I think the beauty of the cave diving is, A, you, you can't use that rule, but B, even more importantly, is it really magnifies the issue of be back on the boat with 500 PSI. Because it actually shows you that's not a gas plan. That's what you want to do. At, that's where you want to be at the end of the dive. It's not a plan of how to get there. That doesn't tell you how to get there. It's just it was a quick and easy way to push somebody through training. And when they show up with less than that or they run out of gas, we said, you know, we said be back on the boat with 500 PSI. How can you hold us culpable? Right. So for decades, divers have learned to just – you know, guesstimate as, as you get yeah. close to the red zone, mm -hmm. that means, you know, that's what I'm supposed to be back on the boat. But really the red zone on that gauge is just saying, Hey, your gauge is not very accurate in this part <laughs> of the, of the of gauge, the gauge right. the, the construction of it, the way they're built, the, the closer you get to the edge of that needle, it's not accurate. That red zone doesn't mean this is when you have to be on the boat. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I believe that that little bit of knowledge, I know it's not taught in most open water classes. The reliability of the gauge, the built-in error on the gauge, that's what that little red zone's all about is you can't rely on it as it approaches 500. It's, it's iffy. It gets less and less accurate. 
So if we go back to Sheck's article, as he took that information from Dave, that associative approach that Dave was working on. Which is the logical beginning point. But I don't think Dave was like, okay, this is it. We associate this, and therefore that's the cause. I don't think he was like that. No, no, but he, right. he had to start somewhere, right? Right, exactly. That was the logical starting point of an accident analysis type program to see what the fuck is really going on. So Sheck leads us to this next section. He says we're going to enter the the time of the causative approach. Causative. So now they're going to try to to link up the associations to the actual death and see if they are indeed causative. Right. Okay. We, 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 we can start ruling out everybody was wearing Reeboks. Instead well, of your good you, trusty, they are so unreliable. Instead of, <laughs> instead of your good trusty Adidas, everybody. <laughs> no, right, we can right, we can start rule some of these things out, right? So he says, soon after we obtained the three cardinal rules by applying the principle of parsimony to the associative approach, I was able to arrive at the same list by examining the theoretical causes of cave diving accidents. Right, and that list being those those main three of, you know, no guideline, no gas plan as far as thirds, using a thirds rule, and, and don't dive deep. They said 155, but really it comes to 100 as, as we progress. Right, and those, those cave diving, those cardinal cave diving rules are going to continue to grow to what we have today of like the five, Our five cardinal rules, rules of cave diving. Yeah, our five cardinal rules that anybody who's taken a cave course should have like burned in their skull. A start burned. was made a start was made by asking why do people die in underwater caves? The obvious answer in all accidents was that they had drowned. But the next question was what made them drown? There were two answers. Either they did not know the way to the surface or they knew the way but were unable to get there. Or the obvi- they took water into the lungs. Don't forget the third most. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. The obvious problem in the first case was a lack of a single continuous guideline to the cave entrance. In the second scenario, the difficulty was either that the diver was trapped or incapacitated due to some internal physiological or psychological problem. While being trapped was certainly a theoretical possibility, the factors with by far the greatest statistical significance were in the other area, running out of air, the third rule, or narcosis, diving too deep. Thus, we arrived at the same three rules through this causative approach that we obtained previously. Right. So that didn't take long to to see that those associations were actually... The cause. <laughs> right. Respects, so, right. So now we're starting to look at this from multiple angles and we come up with these rules of you always have to know the way home and you always have to have enough gas to get everybody back there. And you can't risk diving too deep to the point where you start getting narked numb and narked in the brain <laughs> that you can't make those good decisions not to mention the deep thing also is a factor in gas planning as well as gas usage it, it increases exponentially the deeper you go so the narcosis is a huge part of it like a 95 percent of it and then also that 
you're not thinking straight and you're trying to run a gas plan that the gas is leaving, is being used up. The deeper you go, the quicker it's going. So all of that kind of adds into it. So those things are to be taken into account when we're talking about the depth, not just in narcosis, but also the increased use of gas. So that really is a factor affecting you know, anything that's happening at depth. Right. And then when we start to look at the hazards of cave diving in general, mm-hmm. right, we got line that we're dealing with and entrapment that we're talking about. You know, now we look at a lot of times in early cave diving, we know that rule of thirds also might not be good enough. Right. That we would need to give ourselves even more cushion. Right. That's a starting right. point, rule of yeah, thirds. Yeah, yeah. Right? So he starts to look at some additional causes of entrapment, Brandon. He says, around 1978, a cave diving accident in Texas's Jacob Well first caused me to wonder if we weren't placing too much emphasis on our much extolled three cardinal rules. The divers used a guideline, and we have no reason to believe that they did not use the third rule for their air planning. At 90 feet, they removed their tanks to wiggle through a major restriction with a steeply sloping sand and gravel floor. And in passing through this restriction, they disturbed the floor so that it slid down, partially closing the restriction. On the way out, the lead diver became stuck, and the second diver had no way around him to the surface. The trapped category was of primary concern in this case. Yikes, he corked it. He corked the bottle, baby. (laughs) (laughs) He corked the bottle. Yeah, can you imagine? That's that's a tough one. There's another aspect of cave diving, just like any diving, but I think cave diving it's it's amplified and you know to the exponential, which is you don't know what you're going to run into down there. You have no idea. The environment changes on a daily. To, even on an hour to hour, a minute to minute basis, but the the uh, the idea that the environment is never going to change is ridiculous. It changes uh, all the time, and people have been caught in collapses and you know mudslides, whatever you want to call it, where the bottom kind of falls away and blocks up an en- uh, an exit or an entrance. Right, but what we're what we've realized though is that's not the main cause of diver fatality though no it's a fluke it's it's under the additional but just like it i would say just like um a crazy downwelling right off uh, off of a wall Mm -hmm. you know that that sucks you down hundreds of feet now can it happen to an open water diver sure is it the likely thing that that causes you know when you open up that annual report from from dan is that the leading cause of fatality? No. no but it's it's like we were saying last week that you can die sitting on your couch you know getting up to get another pop out of the fridge and another bag of chips right right it it is a dangerous activity that we're entering right and you like i say you you don't know what you're going to encounter so the only thing i'm trying to magnify or or show is you can't plan for everything, but you can teach a philosophy, which I've yes. said before, right? Sheck says, in addition to becoming trapped from being stuck or having the way out blocked by a partner, the good old buddy cork, it is also possible to be trapped by what you were just saying, Brando, by a, a cave collapse or severe current and line entanglement. We have no reason to believe that any diver has ever died by being trapped by a cave-in. Nevertheless... 
a collapse of an unstable area in Ponce de Leon Springs in Volusia County, Florida, probably buried an already drowned victim in 1968 and has prevented his body from ever being recovered. In the same county, severe current pinned a basic cave diver to a rock at 125 feet in Blue Springs a couple of years ago. His body would still be there if it had not been for the ingenious use of a pole saw by Lieutenant Henry Nicholson, my very capable successor in organizing recoveries. Severe inflow is another way that severe current could cause a fatal accident. Line entanglement is usually considered a minor annoyance to a trained cave diver, but to an ill-equipped novice, it could be lethal. This actually occurred to two teenagers in Manatee Springs in the late 60s who, despite not diving with SPGs, would probably have made it out had they not become entangled in the line. Neither victim had a knife. I mean, all of these things are starting to point towards training. Absolutely. right, And they're starting to learn more and more. And in a, in a cave setting, a line becomes absolutely mandatory right yeah so you have to do a lot of line training but tell me if um you know you're out diving on a shipwreck in lake huron on a day with heavy fog (laughs) and the shipwreck that you're on is a is a freighter that moves in a path what's known as a freighter highway channel well that's where they you know, usually it's go often down that we're out on dive boats and, and there, right. there's freighters going up and down the lake and, and if you've got a hundred feet of visibility on the surface you're in trouble because a fog it's a foggy yeah. day and you're and you get lost and you come up 200 feet away from the the boat, boat mm-hmm. you might as well be a mile away yeah i mean you highlight a great point the um the classification of a dive like that would be called a I I must return to the upline type dive. So that right. is again you approach it with the idea uh, of I can't just come up anywhere on this wreck and if I have to, right? So that old like I can always blow and go so I don't have to worry about my gas planning and I don't have to worry about the need to get back to the upline as much. Boom, and now here we just, now we're, we're talking right now. We're still in open water. A, ship, a shipwreck mm-hmm. in open water, we'll call it 60 feet. Right. Perfectly legit for an open water diver. Right? Not to, only but, legit, it's, but that's what not, we see a lot. Yeah. yeah, right, right. But to not have any concept of a what, I, what tools I need on a must-return-to-the-upline dive. Well, are they even Versus that you can it? always go up. And say ah, right. If you ah, have to. you can always pull a zeppelin on them. Let's call it pulling a zeppelin. This ch- chapter four point one, pulling a zeppelin. Pulling a zeppelin. <laughs> I like. But that idea is not even approached. It's not even mentioned in. And I would have to say ninety nine point nine percent of the open water courses. It's it's not to a lot of open water instructors with a hundred dives or so or two hundred dives. They don't even realize that that's a possible type of dive in open water at recreational depths, especially at beginning open water depths. They don't know like, oh, this this could be a dive where we have to get back to this line, and how do we do it? How do we accomplish that? 
on any given day. Right. You know, if we go back to Paul Zamoulis' article, he too mentions a point about the teenage kids dying in the cave. He says, still another interesting aspect which has surfaced from current cave diving accident studies is that 73% of the fatalities involve teenage divers between the ages of 15 and 20. Wow. And in one double death case at Peacock, the dive master expressly warned two 16-year-old divers not to go into the cave. They were supposed to remain in the open area of the spring, and several hours later, their bodies were recovered from a point some 400 feet back into the cave. This represents strong and damning evidence against the judgment capabilities of our younger divers. Wait a minute. You're saying teenagers don't listen to a fucking word you say? <laughs> he says lack they know of better? He says lack of mature judgment, <laughs> impulsiveness thrill-seeking, childish disregard for safety regulations are all two fatal faults linked with teenage diving accidents. What You forgot one. Self-anointed immortality. I can't die. Know-it-all little shits. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me but, about diving. I, uh, but listen to... I'm uh, using my dad's gear. <laughs> But listen to these questions Paul asks, Brando. He says, are we teaching scuba diving to people too young to handle the sober <gasps> responsibilities of caution, are self-discipline, and pre-planning? Oh, I don't know. We just lowered the minimum age to 10. Yeah, you th- why you think not? You think, uh, you think we've... Uh... Let's get that 10-year-old dollar in here. That's a good dollar. That's a smart dollar because there's a lot of 10-year-olds that want to do this. And why not? Why wouldn't we? Or is it possible... Paul says that the Florida caves are more frequently dived by teenagers because of the low cost and easy access. Whatever the reason, it must be clearly understood that cave diving is definitely more perilous than other types of diving. I think we can agree on that. And yeah, making it accessible to teenagers who, you know, just just on the basis of being a teenager, usually they're they are impulsive. They are reckless. They do believe they're immortal. It won't happen to me. They don't have enough experience in life to understand, like, hey, hey, fucker, I'm the cave, and I will knock you down. Well, yeah, but when the when the rule is, whatever you do, don't touch this big red button, <laughs> and then I'm going to leave you alone right? W- with all your dive gear to go swim around all of the area around the big red button. I don't care if you're a teenager or, or, or even no. a, a curious grown adult who's, who's them, now James. trying to trying to get back out and, <laughs> and relive a lost life because adults we've looked well, at of course you know, adults accent, do it. Yeah, that the answer can't be don't touch the big red button. It's got to be a clear, lengthy, understandable explanation to what happens when the big red button is pushed. That's going to cause everybody to explode and die. Well, again, I go back to this. Maybe you don't have enough experience with teenagers, but they don't believe you. Okay, they don't. You lack credibility, old man. (laughs) You've only made it to 47 years old. They're 18 and 19. They know a whole lot more than you. Oh, I remember those days. (laughs) No, it's worse now. Because they've got they've got the internet. Most people your age, although you you are somewhat tech savvy, they're 
exponentially more tech savvy th than you, and they'll just look up a video of how to do it. Now, they weren't doing that back in this time, but they still had that. I, I couldn't imagine what it, what it would be today if we didn't have what we have right now as far as training available. But back in the day, if you had the internet without that training available, YouTube, the YouTube Academy of Cave Diving would have been born. And I think you'd have a, well, I think you might have a, a few more incidents. Well, speaking of incidents, let's look at some of the additional causes of incapacitation. Now, Sheck says chapter four in Basic Cave Diving, his book, The Blueprint for Survival, describes a diver lacking a guideline who swam on frantically into clear water instead of following their silt trail out of the cave as urged by his partner. Both divers knowingly violated several safety procedures, yet one diver did not make it out of the cave alive. The only difference between the victim and his partner was that the victim was incapacitated by what the American Red Cross used to describe as the sudden, unreasoning, and overwhelming fear which attacks people in the face of real or fancied danger. Fancy. Panic. <laughs> fancied. I fancy me some danger today, mate. Randall, would you fancy a little panic tonight? <laughs> a wee bit, aye. In addition to causing divers to make poor decisions, severe panic can cause one to become totally unable to function. Have you ever seen this, James? Have you ever seen someone just, they can't function? They just stop moving? Yes, yeah, I have. I have as well, yeah. I've seen people do the absolutely comatose turn into freak-out panic yeah. multiple times. Yeah, and that's, I mean, we talk about it in open water classes, and it seems it's something where they uh, all thoughts go out of their head, and the only thing in their left is, I must get to air, and they go. And, and all the gear has to come off of them as they go. Um, I, I've seen it on open water dives, you know, where I, I, divers, for, you know, forgot to change tanks between dives. Right. And then they, they get in the water and it, it slips through. Now, I've been there and seen the diver before right as they were running out of gas. And you're and right in front of them. But they don't go to with, you with uh, with every resource right. possible. But it's when training, that, James. When that sudden, unreasoning and overwhelming fear attacks them in the face of this real or this fancy danger, that they lose control of their ability to think. Would you? I would go so far as to to say they probably didn't receive adequate training in uh, gas sharing. Well, they don't even know yet, you know, and and, and in the hustle and bustle of what do you mean of, they're open water certified? Not well, they were open water. Well, this was open water training. Oh, training, but, but oh, even oh, even still, yeah, op they're open water certified, right? I mean, I just happened to be there taking some pictures and saw the guy's gauge at zero as I was swimming around him. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, dude. But, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, what, uh, you're about to be in a really bad spot. But, I mean, even if you've got good training, Brando, it takes time for all of this stuff to sink into you to get comfortable with managing it all. I mean, how many times do people look down Did at their gauge and, like, they, they look at the gauge, they stare at the gauge, let go of it so it, 
you know, retractors back in with it. Again. And, and then you could ask them one second. How much gas after After letting <laughs> go. Hey, how much gas do you have? Uh, I don't know. Let me pull Hold my gauge on. Let out me check again. again. Right? <laughs> how, how deep are you? I don't know. Let me check my gauge again. Yeah. Well, what you just what you just illustrated there it happens all the time. It, I can remember teaching the fundies. Same thing. Same exact thing. How much gas do you have? I don't know. You, you just looked at it. Did, it. did it not go into your head? So at least bringing it up in that training, they start to learn. I not only have to look at it, I have to register it. So my brain has to be on. And then again, I go back to needs to be trained out of you kind of thing. Your it, natural it reaction has to be trained out of you. Exactly right, yeah. The problem is in so much training, so much open water training, this is why, again, this is why we what we were saying is the perspective needs to change is you're taught to just listen to the instructor, do what the instructor says, and and if a slip up happens on the instructional end, which happens because we're human, sure, we're realizing we're realizing that nowadays, and a open water student somehow gets into the water without swapping out tanks. I mean, things happen. So I mean, you as a diver need to be trained. And when you've got six students or eight students, and one guy slips through the cracks, and the notion that. Everything that you need to know can be done in one weekend and four dives, <laughs> and you'll be fine. Yeah. Now here, go out and do it on your own. That's not reality. Right. And, and, and I think that's what th- this training is saying is, no, we got to slow it all down. And you need dives, exponential of four open water dives to have that relaxation and that comfort, to have the wherewithal, to start seeing and having your your awareness open up around you to see more than the, the the basic tunnel vision of the majority of divers out there. Well, yeah. Again, I mean, I mean, we this is this is a great episode or group of episodes because it is highlighting what is basically wrong with the what I say wrong. What it basically needs work and improvement and reexamination and and revitalization is the the open water program doesn't approach diving in the same way that some very smart people in the cave community approached cave diver training, which is let's look at what's going on. I mean, and we have enough data, we have enough dives <laughs> to go back, re-examine, and redesign an approach to diver training using this as a model. This is a great model, if you ask me. I mean, is it perfect? You, no, but it's a good... You shouldn't... You shouldn't have to get all the way to a cave class. No, right. Before you're taught something like this, right? You shouldn't be able to take an open water certification class that tells you you can go diving anywhere you want and an advanced class to let you to let you go deeper and Hold become it. rescue trained. And, I got to stop uh, you uh, for a, a second. Card <laughs> catalog of of certification (laughs) specialties and even become an instructor before you're taught to take ownership of yourself and your teammates underwater agreed agreed and i gotta stop you're gonna get an an argument that they don't teach any they don't teach any of that come on we we do listen look at look at our different they'll point out some sentences in their book and I guess the our, our our and I think you agree with me. I'm kind of including you if you if you don't say so. But 
our approach is it's not enough and it's not approaching it from a, a logical perspective. It's a, I mean, open water training seems to be approached from the perspective of how the more money we have in the industry and the more divers we have in the industry, the better it will be. And I, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I do, I do believe there's an aspect of what I just said that is true, but I don't agree flooding this activity with as many as we can and making it as quick as we can to do so because that's what that's all about. The speed equals money. The ease equals money. When people see how easy they can get through a class, that equals money in their pocket. So, again, if you made it more stringent, if you approached it the way cave diver training is, and I am not saying everybody has to have perfect buoyancy and a perfect propulsion technique and, you know, wear twins with redundant air supply and or gas supply and redundant regulators. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is the approach of we have to solve the problem underwater should be carried into uh, under into open water. I would agree with you. Among other things, but that's a big one. Yeah. Because people need to be taught how to deal with their brain when this, and I'll quote again, sudden unreasoning and overwhelming fear attacks people real or fancied. Well, let's let's look a little more into that for one second. I know we I don't want to get too far out of off course here, but where's the where does that come from? It comes from the idea if something happens, I won't know what to do and I'm gonna die. Okay? That's that's up there in their head all the time. It's 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 either that or because it hasn't been trained out. Right. It hasn't been trained out and and the other the other side is ignorance is bliss until you know you, like, like we uh quoted Mike Tyson until ignorance punt until it punches you in the face and then all of a sudden you're like holy fuck i needed to know all this right right, right. and then panic i'll be sets fine in. as long as i have 500 when <laughs> exactly. i get back on the boat and then you go shit i don't have 500 to get back on the boat well yeah or oh, i have 500 i have 550 right now and i'm down at 120 feet you know, a thousand feet from the upline. Ah, <laughs> right. Sheck says, in addition to causing divers to make poor decisions, severe panic can cause one to become totally unable to function. It also causes changes in pulse and respiration, resulting in hyperventilation and other problems that can lead to a loss of consciousness, especially underwater. Dave DeSotos' data showed that 25% of the victims that drowned from 1960 through 1972 had air remaining in their tanks. Panic may very well have played a major part in many of those drownings and deserves to be ranked with running out of air and narcosis as a major cause of incapacitation. So that little scenario, James, what do you think is going on? They, they still had gas but they feel they can't breathe. They can't, they, their breathing cannot catch up to the gas being supplied. And I would go so far as to say that almost, I would say any regulator you buy, any mainstream regulator is going to supply you way more than enough gas to be breathing. So what is it that is happening to these divers? And you and I both know yes. that we read these stories in the annual reports of open water divers. This isn't a cave thing. Mm -hmm. right. right. When you start right. working so hard that it becomes difficult to breathe on the 
$1,000 regulator that you have, even if you've right. got a $300 piece of shit regulator, yes, you're right. It's probably way more able to provide you with more air than you could ever want. Your oxygen, the partial pressure of oxygen, even at 30 feet, you hardly need any oxygen coming out of that tank to maintain consciousness. So right. something else is happening. It's not addressed enough in open water, and you don't really get it until you start to get some tech training and some cave training, and, and you start to learn that technique and working, or I should say lack of working, are the enemies of building up CO2. So you, in other words, when you start working, you're going to build up CO2. If you have no buoyancy control, you're working the entire time. If you're overweighted, you're working the entire time, you know? You're, you're constantly kicking to stay up. Or if you, you know, put too much gas in, the, the deeper you are, minor changes in your depth create great changes in buoyancy, which you're fighting against. And if you're not streamlined, you got shit hanging off of you, you got your console and all the other bullshit, if you have all that stuff hanging off of you, that creates drag in the water, which makes you work harder. Then God forbid you're working against a flow or a current. And God forbid you're even deeper because the partial pressure of the carbon dioxide goes up directly with your ambient pressure, which increases as you go deeper. And it doesn't matter if you have a $300 lowest model, mm -hmm. worst performing regulator, or a $1,500 top-of-the-line titanium-constructed best-performing tester's choice ruby navy ruby-seeded diamond-encrusted ruby <laughs> regulator. Like, you are going to get to the point where you throw that out of your mouth. You would rather br try to breathe water than what's coming through that regulator because it, it, it's too hard to breathe. Right. And it has nothing to do with the performance of the regulator. And for those of our, our listeners who don't know this, I hope they do if they're constant listeners, but carbon dioxide drives our urge to breathe. The higher the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in our bloodstream, the more urge to breathe we have. So we start breathing faster and faster and less efficient and less efficient. So you, it's a vicious cycle. You continually decrease the amount of carbon dioxide you are pushing out. And as your muscles work, they're creating more and more carbon dioxide and you can't get rid of it, which drives your urge to breathe up to the point you can't get rid of that urge to breathe and it overtakes. And that's, that is to me the beginning of panic because that is where their world starts to close in. You, you've seen their, that laser focus goes right to a little like a dot they have nothing else on their mind but i have to get to the surface i got to breathe right right and and this is where you hear of people abandoning their regulator right drowning with tanks full of gas and for some reason they feel they have to take their mask off too right it's uncomfortable i think i might be able to get some air through my nose <laughs> i knew i should have got the one with the purgy valve in it yes one of the best divers in the world in 1972 was Brandon Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a joke. No, it was Randy Hilton. Oh, Randy Hilton. In February of that year, he died at Eagle's Nest, Florida, at a depth of 155 feet. While he did perish while violating the depth rule, it was highly unlikely that Randy was unduly influenced by narcosis. 
He routinely dived in caves below 250 feet and three months earlier had become the seventh of only eight people known to have survived the dive to 400 feet on air. Randy had a history of heart problems for which he had taken medication. His best friend, John Harper, had expressed that belief that Randy suffered a heart attack during his efforts to free himself from a severe line entanglement. I mean, look, just looking at the depth and the fact that he's trapped, he's struggling, he's working, he's building up carbon dioxide big time, right? Like you were just saying earlier, right. yeah. And it gives you that, that is where you get your urge to breathe, that feeling. You know, go ahead, hold your breath, people, and, and see how long you can go. It's, you're not blacking out because of lack of oxygen unless you're one of those people that can just subdue that urge to breathe. <laughs> you can override that. But you'll see that urge to breathe can just gets bigger and bigger, and that's because the CO2 in your blood is not being eliminated. It isn't being exhausted through your ex, you know, exhalation. Yeah, you still, you still have tons of O2 in there. Yeah, O2 is, is fine, and, and that's what I – you know, I – when I teach, I, I make a big point of like trying to illustrate this. The deeper we go, the less oxygen you need as far as percentage in your tanks. So, for example, at 100 feet where the ambient pressure is four at us, we can survive on a 0.16 PPO2. In other words, 16% oxygen in our atmosphere at the surface, which we would call a 0.16 partial pressure of oxygen. What do you need at 100 feet to, to equate to a 0.16? You need a 0.04. So 4% oxygen in that breathing mixture will maintain life as far as oxygen goes. You have enough oxygen to stay awake and conscious. The only problem is your CO2 goes up as you work and it goes up. The partial pressure of CO2 goes up as you go deeper and deeper. That's why you just can't right. work, man. Right. And then when that CO2 is just raging and climbing and it's on a downward spiral because as as it builds, your heart starts pumping harder and harder to push it out, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. And that urge to breathe is, is trying to tell you, exhaust it, <gasps> exhaust it. it. It would like you not to do nothing but just exhaust CO2, but you can't because you're, and then, you're like sucking – Well. You're also sucking in denser gas. And working harder and, and working harder, harder and harder. It's, a, it's such which a vicious makes your cycle, heart, James. Which makes your heart rage and pump right, faster and faster and faster. And this is where, you know, what happens to poor old Randy. Yeah. The heart, the heart attack happens. And a heart attack. And, I mean, I'll go back. I'll go to even a little bit more about the, the things we preach as far as technique, propulsion techniques, buoyancy control. If you are... Hovering effortlessly at a given depth, effortlessly is the key word. You're not producing CO2 nearly as much as someone who's kicking because they're overweighted to stay off the bottom. So you see how even just that maintenance of buoyancy control and having that mastered will cut down the chance of a CO2 buildup. But now let's, let's look at it like you're at 100 feet and you have a shit propulsion technique like a, a giant uh, flutter kick, which uses huge muscles, quads, hamstrings, uses those large muscles producing a lot of CO2, right? Yeah, and pushes the water for only 
twenty percent of the range range of kick yeah. in a productive way, right? Eighty percent of the water's going in a way that you don't want it to go to. Right. I mean, you're I- probably dropping your knees and kicking from the hip, anyways, because kicking <laughs> a fin that way is exhausting. So you're gonna you're gonna eventually you know, find an easier way. So you're going to start doing that bicycle kick. Right. Which then drops super on a trim. So you got more drag. It's a way like all, all of those technique issues be, be, you know, build upon themselves in a negative way. And they're all about CO2 people. They're, they're, that whole emphasis on technique and a, and a efficient propulsion technique is about carbon dioxide buildup. As well as in a cave situation, we're trying not to disturb the environment because visibility is an incident, as we'll find out. Visibility is a contributing factor to accidents. But using a, a good propulsion technique, you don't use those, those quads and hams. You use almost entirely just your ankles, and you'll, you'll, you'll go great if you have good technique. So what we see is the real issue that we had with Randy is... He should have had split fins. <laughs> Data shows. <laughs> More recently, Brett Zepp died in an underwater cave in Arizona. Brett was a very courageous individual who pursued several high-risk outdoor activities despite suffering from severe diabetes. Four years ago, I had the occasion to kayak down the middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho with Emory University's Dr. Paul Davidson, one of the top endocrinologists in the country. After I described the accident to him, Paul expressed the definite opinion that Brett had drowned due to insulin shock. Obviously, severe illness merits our attention as a potential cause of incapacitation, particularly since the cave diving population seems to be growing older. So what, I mean... We don't know anything about Brett Zepp's accident, but I sure you ask an endocrinologist who, for those who don't know what that is, they basically specialize in glandular issues, which diabetes is an issue with the pancreas gland. Um, so he's a specialist in the, in that. It's just like if you're if all you got is a hammer, everything's a nail kind of thing. That's how I kind of see that because we don't really know the in, the details. Sure, but I, I think uh, I know the and, point. And again, is, this is uh, this is from even from the nineties. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so medication and drugs are going to have an effect physiologically on what's pumping through your blood well, yeah. and how your body's reacting to those chemicals and how those gases are going to react with those chemicals as well. I mean, I mean. Breathing underwater and, and life underwater in reality is just a big old chemical reaction anyway. I guess my point with all that is we still don't know enough about how being underwater affects our physiology. I mean, we're learning more, but I'm not so arrogant to believe we know, you know, we're pretty close to knowing it all. I'm not that arrogant. I, uh, I know the scientific community seems to be that way, but I, I don't believe we know nearly enough. I I would agree with you. I, I bet you will be learning and rewriting the book for decades to come. Right. In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, yeah. On a routine dive in Florida's Devil's Eye Cave System in 1973, Dana Turner dislodged a huge limestone pendant from the ceiling that missed my head by less than a foot. At Wakulla Springs in 1982. 
Paul Deloach sliced his hand so badly on a piece of glass that he had difficulty controlling the bleeding with direct pressure, and several stitches were required to close the wound. And more recently, a diver decompressing with John Zumrich in Devil's Ear was nearly knocked out by a nearby lightning strike. And the concussion from a battery pack implosion at 760 feet in Mante stunned me. Along with severe illness, severe trauma during a dive could be lethal. Even a cold during a dive. (laughs) But yeah. I mean, these stories do highlight the need for a handle on your own health. And as well as, I mean, you don't know what... you don't know. It's like a box and, of chocolates. You could get hit by lightning. You could. You could have and, your batteries in a cave exploded. and in open water. Though I mean, these right. are all just these are all just diving issues. Right. In 1974, one of the best cave divers, Dana Turner, died on the way out of Sally Ward Spring, Florida, at a depth of 290 feet. I don't know. Is he one of the best? He's knocking down pendants off of the ceiling. He's dying. (laughs) At the time. At the time. (laughs) At the time. I'm kidding. It's a joke. At at the time where most people die just putting their fins on, this guy is. (laughs) (laughs) He made it to 290 feet. He was the current secretary and a director of the NACD, as well as a charter member of the NSSCDS. While narcosis may have played a factor, Dana regularly dived to similar depths on air and had recently survived the dive to 360 feet. His frantic <laughs> movements to the ceiling of the cave just before losing consciousness were not indicative of a depth blackout from narcosis nor an oxygen convulsion. The pattern was most similar to a victim who was unable to breathe, yet Dana had nearly half of his air left and gave no, I need air signal. Whoa, wait a minute. After we made the recovery, Brando, laboratory analysis showed, just like with old Jockey and the boys many decades earlier, a dangerously high percentage of carbon monoxide in his tanks. So again... just highlighting the the whole thing with the ambient pressure affecting the partial pressure of any gas that you're breathing and any gas that's cursing through your blood vessels. And carbon monoxide has this propensity, for those who don't know, to push off oxygen from your, your hemoglobin and t- take its place, really. And maybe push off isn't the right word, but... Carbon monoxide will bind up with the hemoglobin. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's you know, many, 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 many times greater affinity for the hemoglobin and oxygen binding than oxygen and hemoglobin. So what that means is it takes up all your hemoglobin, which is what is used to transport the oxygen through your blood. So carbon monoxide um, will basically cause you to have a hypoxic situation because your blood no longer will carry the oxygen. We now know that oxygen toxicity can cause an inability to breathe effectively as well as a convulsion. It's likely that both carbon monoxide poisoning and oxygen toxicity caused Dana's drowning. The following year, 
An oxygen convulsion claimed the life of another NSSCDS charter member and NACD vice president and director, Louis Holzendorf. Lewis perished on a mixed gas dive at a depth of 60 feet while decompressing on pure oxygen as prescribed by the U.S. Navy tables, the only ones that were available at the time. So he's, he's at a 3.0, almost, 2 point whatever, 9.5. Oh, right. Less than as that. more divers began using nitrox, heliox, and trimix for cave diving, other opportunities for incapacitation and death arise besides O2 toxicity. Efforts to reduce the oxygen content to prevent oxygen toxicity at depth can also result in a mixture that contains too little oxygen to maintain consciousness near the surface, resulting in hypoxia. Since mixed gas tables are probably not as reliable as air tables, the opportunities for a severe Benz hit in the water also increases where paralysis or unconsciousness would most likely result in drowning. And I would say he says that simply because there isn't as much data on mixed gas tables as there, there was on regular you know, recreational air tables kind of thing. Right, back in uh, 1990. Right. When he's writing this. But I think at the end of the day, like we, we look at, you know, what was taught originally about breathing gases underwater and how getting everyone to to become a diver, the, the, the book got easier and easier and easier to the point where you really never really talked about, you know, O2 toxicity until you, maybe you got into a nitrox class. You started talking about a little bit. And nowadays they've even taken it out of a nitrox class of like how to even calculate a partial pressure it's just Trust, put 1.4 yeah. <laughs> on your computer and, and let don't it do let it. it start beeping on you yeah again we're dumbing we're dumbing so much shit in our world down that we become so reliant on um, technology when technology fails which it inevitably does you know get that through your head that piece of electronic equipment is going to fail you underwater and it's Murphy's Law is going to say it's going to do it at the worst possible time. A recent accident involving NACD diver Bill McFadden at Little Dismal was probably initiated by narcosis and panic. But the victim may have drowned due to losing consciousness from an embolism. Only the exceptional experience and ability of Bill Gavin and particularly the rescuer Bill Maine kept this accident from being a double or triple tragedy. Hypothermia can also cause unconsciousness and undoubtedly was a major cause in Roberta Swicegood's recent death in a cold Pennsylvania cave. A final potential cause of a diver's being unable to surface due to incapacitation is the common practice of using gas pockets in the ceiling of underwater caves to talk to a partner. Even if the pocket contains nothing more than expired air, it is likely that 5% of the gas is carbon dioxide. And older pockets may also contain significant amounts of gas released from decaying vegetation in the floor of the cave, including methane. Over a period of time, these gas pockets have been observed to diminish by this writer. Is all of the gas mixture escaping or being dissolved into the water at a uniform rate? Or are some gases leaving more rapidly than others, leaving greater concentrations of their more lethal counterparts behind? 
Until these questions are resolved, it is probably best to discourage breathing the gas in these pockets unless they are flushed completely with fresh air. <laughs> uh, how many times do you see those little air pockets down at the... Oh, yeah, you see them all the In those time. buckets yeah. down at the quarry, people just yeah. <laughs> pop their heads up and want to... Hey, how's it going? I've done it. I mean, uh, is it smart? Probably not the smartest thing to do. And I wouldn't... I would take my inhalation off my reg and then speak and put it back in. But for that very reason, for that very reason, no, you don't don't know know what what that shit gas is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you're at depth. So everything's magnified. Again, we work off of partial pressures through these, you know, chemo and pH and various barrel receptors throughout our blood, our bloodstream and our body. Those are all keyed in by partial pressures of gas, not necessarily the percentage but the partial pressure, which is a real uh, d- direct relation to the ambient pressure and the and the percentage. Right. This is the whole premise of Dalton's law, which nowadays in 2023, you've got to do, for the most part, a lot of education beyond the normal training before you even really sit down with a, a typical uh-huh. instructor and have the concept or have the conversation of Dalton's law right. and how it applies. Exactly, which is that to me is like the fundamental aspect of the physiology of diving, partial pressure of gases, and it's changing as you're diving according to depth, you know, and ambient pressure. So partial pressure is that that's the basic foundation of of physiology for diving underwater is the gas in our body. Maybe I'm just a big nerdy geeky dive well you nerd are or something i mean. i don't know but 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 to <laughs> me this is this is like the fascinating part of learning scuba to me it is. is is things like this yeah right? it, it's let's have a real conversation about Boyle's law and how it applies to us as a human being i, I don't want to just never hold your breath because your, your lungs will explode oh yeah okay let's thanks just, <laughs> now that's something you say to like a four-year-old or a five-year-old you know, you tell them not to do things because I told you, because it's bad, because – or you make up something, you know, don't make faces because of a – you know, because it's, a strong wind will stay, that way. make it stay like that or masturbating right. but, but, but I mean, blind. this is <laughs> – <laughs> I, I am wearing glasses. <laughs> yes. I, I, I didn't have to start wearing glasses till I got married. <laughs> right, but, but – when you give them that childish rule of that, how do you expect them to act like an adult when they have the C card in their hand? Well, you've made it impossible because they're not trained adults. They're they're trained. This is gonna. I was gonna say they're trained monkeys. That's not very nice, but they're receiving a minimal amount of training. Well, that, that's my point. Is yeah. how are you going to expect somebody to act like an adult when you give them the four-year-old version of the explanation? Very good, James. right? And, and then you go here. You're certified. Go diving, and then it's so much later before they can have a real adult conversation about it. And every one of them that I've ever had it with goes, I never "Why knew the hell have I not heard about this sooner?" Oh yeah, I agree. Same thing with me. You start talking about the reality of the physiology of diving, the the real hazards, if you will, of diving are this, the, the physiology of diving, the issues that can arise from working too hard, from not breathing 
what I would call proper gases at depth, that kind of stuff. Not the bends. Yeah, but you don't have to talk about, I mean, you don't have to start class by teaching somebody Trimex. No. But you can easily have the conversation with somebody who knows nothing about scuba diving, what the partial pressure of gases do when you go deeper. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. I think that, I think that's one of our biggest points, and I, I'm not trying to end the episode right now, but and I think we agree, is one of the biggest points is the training approach is what needs to be revamped. Not We don't want to make everybody a cave diver. We don't want to make everybody a trimix diver, but recreational divers deserve to know more than they're being taught. Or they deserve to be told you're being taught like a four-year-old. Right. and, and Go dive like a four-year-old. There you, you go. You shouldn't be taught like a four-year-old and told to go dive like an adult. That's perfect, James. Sheck summarizes this accident analysis revisited by saying, the analysis of recent accidents in particular have shown that perhaps too much emphasis has been placed on the three cardinal safety procedures for cave diving. These are using a single continuous guideline from the cave entrance, reserving at least two-thirds of the starting air supply for the trip out of the cave, and avoiding deep diving causative analysis by this writer has shown that frequently other factors may be the primary reason for divers being unable to surface from being trapped or incapacitated. Hopefully, other potential causes of cave diving accidents can be identified. A new list of safety procedures or recommendations for cave diving should be developed based on the prevention of the causes of cave diving accidents and secondarily on the cure of the causes once they have occurred. A future article by this writer will address this latter topic. Safety should always be most important consideration in planning and executing a cave dive, but we should not forget that it is not the only one. Otherwise, none of us would go cave diving in the first place. I think this highlights an approach to cave diving, which is get proper, get training. And then in the training... The training has to include looking at accidents where people actually had the D word occur, okay? Because, I mean, do you in open water get discouraged from your training agency from using the D word? Ask yourself that. And if so, why? Because I, I think it's not informed consent to these new divers coming into our, our community if they don't understand, like, the D word is a very distinct possibility if you kind of disregard the seriousness of the training. I agree with you. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a serious, frank discussion with your students. Yeah, what are you entering into? And then with cave diving, like I say, to, do you think it would be helpful or would have been helpful to these, peop, these folks that did die or have incidents you know, that were kind of rare, you know, getting in a cork situation or... You know, the 260 feet or whatever dives they're doing, they're, they're going deeper. Would, would it have benefited them to have heard other stories where people perished or had incidents doing this stuff? Because it would have at least raised awareness, like there's the potential that this could happen to me. And so I know this could happen, so I'm going to approach the dive differently? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, having... You mean having a real educational conversation <laughs> with the person who's right. training you yeah. that they can 
tell stories of experience and, and why we have the rules that we have and why we don't do certain things and why we behave a certain way. We, we don't just take our, our normal daily, you know, <laughs> you know cubicle back, life underwater with us. With 500, yeah. Well, exactly, and I think that's, that's what a good cave diving course will give you. It will, it will illustrate how we came about with these rules and, but also, maybe even more importantly, you'll realize entering this activity, you can do everything right and still something can happen that you're not prepared for or because you, you don't know what you're going to get. It's a box of chocolates down there. You never know what you're going to get. And we can't possibly train for every single scenario. But you can train a philosophical base. Very good. Paul Zamoulis ended his editorial about cave diving is not for sport divers by saying, it's not impossible for a sports diver to become a safe cave diver. Florida divers do it every day. It's just that you have to learn before you leap into an inviting spring. Very good. And I think where we're at today in 2023, 50 years later. 50 years. is We're starting to see a lot of the principles that we've made and held so true to cave diving training are starting to make themselves seem very logical and just open water training as well. If we really want a a growth avenue Mm -hmm. for divers to take. And a growth for the industry. Again, we're, we're looking at unprecedented dropout rates. We can't get people into it because the dropout rates, you got to remember, you got to know, like, when people drop out of scuba diving, that means less people are out there diving, which means less non-divers are seeing divers, which it's just like advertising. You, if you're not seeing it, you're probably not going to do it kind of thing. You know, the more divers you have out there enjoying themselves, not scaring the shit out of themselves and, and sticking with the activity, the more you'll attract in here if that is indeed the goal. Yeah, and when you're... When your avenue is full of roadblocks, it makes it hard right. to continue down the road, you know, and when there's roadblocks in your training that you got to start all over again, there's roadblocks into the thinking where you got to completely relearn how to do stuff. There's roadblocks in the equipment where you got to throw the thousands and thousands of dollars of gear that you spent and, and buy all new because it like. Like those are just getting in the way of keeping people in something that you and I have been passionate about for for thirty years. I think most folks that are have been in the the scuba community actively diving for thirty years or so, I think they probably agree, at least to some extent, with everything that we've said here as far as revamping the whole way we approach diver training. You know, holding ourselves accountable, not just giving them this wham bam fast food thank you, ma'am, class. I think that's what this is about. This is, you know, our whole cave diving. We know there's not, uh, you know, the majority of divers are not cave divers, but both of us agree there's a huge amount to learn from cave divers and cave diving uh, instruction, the way they've designed it. Absolutely. And I think it's a disservice to every diver out there that they have to wait Uh all that time to hear it, you know. They got to wait all the way until the point where they might possibly think about taking a cave class before it ever enters their ears of a, another way of thinking through 
even a basic 60-foot open water dive on swimming on the outside of a shipwreck, not, not penetrating, mm-hmm. just like, like we talked about earlier. It, it, it can apply right to that. Absolutely. All right, everybody, that's uh, part two of Accident Analysis Revisited. But we're not done with Cave Dive Month, Brando. Don't don't pull that logbook out. Oh, I'm not. I'm going further in. I'm picking up I'm picking up my stage bottle I left from last year. We're going, All right. we're going further. We're going further. We're not done, people. Pour yourself a cup of Abyss Coffee. Get yourself a little splash of the old Kraken. Get that caffeine in you. And get cracking. Uh, and get cracking, because we are going to continue with Great Dive Podcast International Cave Diving Month next week. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Blue, blue, blue.